I want to just be able to eat what I want without feeling bad. I've watched a few shows on Netflix in the past about veganism and it's horrific and it makes you want to be vegan, but then I don't want to stop eating meat. So I try not to think about it. Less and Better, Episode 7. Not a Small Act. I'm Olivia Oldham. I'm Katie Ravel. In this episode, we're going to dig into a question that, arguably, we should have started with. After all, the way you choose to answer it could negate every other conversation we've had so far. Lurking in the background of all the discussions we've had about less and better meat, there is a pretty fundamental question. Can it ever be morally right to farm animals? Not because of the consequences for ecosystems, for the climate, for people, but just in and of itself. Is it okay to keep and control animals for human needs or human wants and to kill them for humans to eat? Is it possible to square respect, care, even love for animals with killing and eating them? Could you kill an animal? When you go to the slaughterhouse, they can feel it. They wouldn't come out of the trailer. Back when he used to raise goats, farmer Shivalingam Vasanta Kumar, who also goes by Kumar, he'd bring the goats to the abattoir himself. And I started questioning, am I doing the right thing? Why am I inflicting pain? And do we really need animal protein? And is there a better way to farm? I originally come from Sri Lanka, from a dairy farm. I was born into a farming community and my parents farmed. As a Hindu, we don't uh, eat beef. It's a sacred animal. Dad was a total vegetarian and I was a meat eater. We ate meat once a month. It was a, a luxury. I loved meat. I came to England after the Civil War broke out in 1985. I did a master's in sustainable agriculture here and I worked on farms mainly dairy and um, educational projects in agriculture. And then I had my own goat farm and a sheep farm. My name's Molly and I am Kamar's daughter. I kind of grew up on farms and like closely followed the work that my dad was doing. I then graduated as a vet in 2019 and went into equine practice and then into small animal practice. When I worked in a dairy farm, I was a stock person and I used to do relief milking and separating calves. I started questioning the whole, the system, the way the system was working wasn't right to me personally. Uh, separating calves and the stress on the, on the cows. When I started my goat farm, we had 70 goats and the male kids were taken for slaughter. And I always had a trailer on the field and I used to select the male kids and I put them in the field and I parked the trailer so that they get used to getting in and out. So I come in the morning, I book them for the slaughter, and I come into the field, they are sitting in the trailer. And I shut the trailer door. And then I drive. <laughs> it's, it's very hard, and I, I go to make a living. And then I'm sitting in my pickup truck, I'm driving, and I'm thinking, I cheated these gold kids. They were sitting in the trailer, literally. So it, questions came, but again, I didn't want to give up because that's my pride, farming. And also, there was a little bit of macho image as well, you know, farming. I had that, and I think a lot of farmers do. In 2014, Kumar moved to a new farm in Devon. He was planning to raise sheep and use their meat for his street food business. But I struggled again when I booked the first batch of lambs, struggled to take them for slaughter. So what I did, I sold it to a middleman. And Molly questioned me at that point, why are you doing this? The whole point was for me to slaughter them and then use that meat. If I'm selling it to the middleman, the whole concept is wrong. I kept quiet and we had a second batch of lambs and I decided that's it. I'm going to give up. But I didn't have the guts to tell anybody. And it was 2019. Molly was in a final year uh, veterinary medicine and she called in the middle of the day. She said, Dad, you've got 20 lambs there. What are you going to do? And I told her, Molly, that's it. You're going to send all the 20 lambs and the 70 used to a, a sanctuary. We need to find a sanctuary. I'm giving up on livestock farming. And I changed into a vegetarian. We found a sanctuary and Molly and I, we loaded them and then the lorries came. We took them there and when we opened the, the trailer gate, they, they all ran into the field. And that was the best moment. 
that freedom to live naturally and then say no more of killing. It was the best feeling. I still remember dad calling me and saying, you know, I have so much enjoyment now when I go to check the sheep. You know, he always yes. say, I, you know, yes. when I go to check them, I always just turn away. I turn away from the ewes and their lambs because I feel so bad of what I'm going to be doing to, you know, to the, the lambs. And then now when I go to them, I, I just feel proud of, of all these lives that we've managed to, to find a home for. It just felt really lovely. Personally, to me, I think every life has got the freedom to live. And and, uh, for protein's sake, for human consumption, I don't think we should be killing animals. After a lifetime of farming animals, Kamar now has a small holding in Somerset where he's growing vegetables without using any animal inputs at all. He uses the vegetables to make traditional South Indian doses which he serves at local street food markets. So, for Molly and Kumar, doing right by animals means not killing them and not eating their meat. But what about those of us who do still choose to eat meat? Should I let this heat up? Yeah, and I'll put some butter in it. Okay. When we were visiting Nikki and James Yoxall on their farm in Aberdeenshire, I happened to mention that I'd never actually eaten a steak. I didn't grow up eating a lot of meat and it's just never occurred to me to order it at a restaurant, probably because it's pretty much always the most expensive thing on the menu. And I guess for the same reason, it's just not the kind of thing I'd really cook for myself at home. So Nikki and James very kindly gave us a couple of steaks to take home with us and we decided to cook and eat them together. Should I pat? Should I pat them? I'm trying to think. What have I seen people doing? I don't mean just like <laughs> pat them. Just give them a wee pat. Um, well, we should put maybe some salt and pepper, salt and pepper. on them, right? <clears throat> and that you could like massage in, or we we could. You yeah. Could no, I'm happy. Whatever. To. I have done it before. Should yeah. I turn them over and? Yeah, I reckon so. And then this pan's probably ready for one of them soon. Great. just testing if it's hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nikki and James told us that the steaks came from Dougie, or maybe Dennis. They're two of the cattle Nikki and James had raised and taken to slaughter in the past year. We sat down to eat and we reflected on how we felt about knowing the names of the animals we were now eating. I was just thinking that it would be nice um, while we're sitting here looking at this beautiful amazing smelling plate of food um that it would be really nice to do what nikki said she and james do which is just to give thanks to dougie or dennis (laughs) whichever one of you it might have been who um gave your life for us to eat this meal um we really appreciate that and we're really looking forward to eating you. <laughs> bon appétit. Bon appétit. Obviously, some people aren't going to eat meat because they, they simply don't believe that it can ever be justified, no matter what the circumstances are or how good the lives of the animals were. Like, at the end of the day, people kill the animals, and, and that's wrong. Um, And I have a lot of respect for that. Um, But I also recognize that other people don't have that view and don't make that choice, whether that's because they just don't think about it, um, because they do think it's justifiable in given contexts to uh, kill any animals or, or simply because they don't believe it's wrong. And I think, well... Certainly up until this point in my life, I fall somewhere in that second camp. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I guess my question there is like, well, you know, what do we do? What do I do? What do we do if we are not just going to totally write off the idea of ever killing an animal? Then what? Yeah, which I think takes us to the whole question of what does it look like to do that better or to do that in the best way possible? Um and not just for the people involved, but fundamentally for the animals as well. Do we have to look away to some extent to be able to 
eat meat? Or is it actually a case of looking closer, of learning to live with death and to accept that it's a necessary part of life? I mean, I, I don't know. Both of those, I think, seem true in different ways to me. Yeah, I think for me personally, and obviously having grown up in a specific context, a specific society, a specific culture, given all that, for me, I think there is an element of cognitive dissonance that is unavoidable. Yeah. I have thought about this specific question a lot and I cannot resolve it. Absolutely. I think in a lot of ways, like if anything was going to stop me from eating meat, it would be this. Mm. Um, I think I think all of the other topics we've touched on and all the other episodes, I think they somehow they don't feel so absolute. Yeah. And I know that this isn't either in some ways, but it also it kind of feels that way. I'm definitely like reaching the end of the process of making this series with more questions than I had before about this mm. and whether it really is right at the very least in in what very limited set of circumstances it can be right yeah. um, for me. When I started eating meat, having been vegetarian, I sort of dressed it up as this very, yeah, level-headed, rational, sensible decision to do with much broader environmental considerations. And I still think those considerations are really relevant, but I think I also used that as a reason not to think about some of the kind of gnarlier, more emotional stuff because it's yeah because it's really really difficult I think being aware of that contradiction feels really important to me and not denying it and not trying to explain it away in a way that feels more important to me than trying to get to a point where there is no contradiction mm. and there is no awkwardness so if at least some of us are going to continue farming and killing animals for meat, at least at some scale, how can we do that better? How can we do it in the best way possible? Not just for the people involved, but for the animals too. You know, that's a big deal, kind of killing an animal and, and eating that meat is not a small act. That's Nikki. And so there needs to be a level of respect, in my mind, for the animal. If we're going to raise animals and we're going to be meat and beef producers, then one of the ways that we can demonstrate that respect is by caring for them as well as we possibly can. Care can mean a lot of different things in different contexts. And care has sometimes been criticised for the way it can disempower the recipients of that care, the way it can turn them into passive objects and grant the caregivers all the power to decide which of their needs are important and which aren't. Animals communicate and experience the world in different ways than we do. So how can we, as humans, as the ones holding all the power, how can we practice care in ways that don't get caught up in this kind of disempowering logic? I wanted to do biology because I wanted to go and study and live with wild animals, of course, who doesn't? Professor Françoise Vemmelsfelder is a biologist and a professor of animal behaviour and welfare at SIUC, Scotland's Rural College. As a first-year student, I became really concerned, and this is quite a while ago, times have changed, how I was told by my professors that my interest in what animals were thinking and feeling was too anthropomorphic, it was too subjective, it couldn't be part of science, and so I couldn't get past that. I, I almost decided to leave science because I thought it was so strange that questions about sentience and what, what animals are thinking and feeling, that that couldn't be part of science. We were taught in a completely mechanistic language. Anything there is to know, any question about behaviour or how they live or what they do is framed in terms of 
complex functional mechanistic systems. And that for me right away didn't really wash because my experience as a child, you know, with our dogs and our cats was these are not machines. They're not complex machines. They are sentient beings. So I decided I changed my direction and my goal has always been to to try and help bring the sentient animal into biological science and find ways to practically help study and understand it. So it doesn't so much look at integrating consciousness as another causal factor in a causal mechanistic system, but really it's a matter philosophically of trying to develop and introduce another language, another perspective that you then also need to test, of course, if that's usable in science. You know, the question, of course, you can ask is when you look at your your animals that you have at home, what makes you convinced they're not machines? In that respect, I think what I've done is not rocket science. You know, it's not based on complex technology or brain scans. There is a, a fundamental presence of animals as sentient beings, and they are expressive in how they move. For a lot of people, the idea of sentience is really central to understanding what is and isn't morally justifiable when it comes to animals. But when we say animals are sentient, what do we actually mean? Well, there's two ways you can approach that. The traditional mechanistic approach is where you would ask, how does sentience and the animal's feelings fit with the animal's functional organisation? That's valid, and I think it would be useful to have more understanding of that. But my colleagues often say, you know, we can only indirectly know what animals feel. I don't think that's true. That was a really important driver for me. It's like when you realise that feelings aren't just things floating around in the brain, you know, without anybody having those feelings. But philosophically speaking, talking about feelings is is per definition related to the whole animal. To give an example, even if we know that, for example, certain brain parts like the amygdala are very closely associated with anxiety, it doesn't mean we're going to say, oh, poor amygdala, they're full of anxiety. (laughs) The sentient being is the whole animal who has the feelings and whose feelings they are. Professor Vemmelsfelder has applied her ideas about animal sentience by developing a tool called Qualitative Behaviour Assessment, or QBA. The idea with QBA is that it gives farmers a framework that helps them draw on their existing knowledge of animal behaviour to assess and track how animals are feeling, and that that can help them do a better job of respecting and caring for them as sentient individuals. The way in which animals move isn't just physical. There is a continuous psychological expressivity, you know, qualitative expressivity. There's what they do. They sit, they walk, they eat. Those are the physical elements that we are taught as scientists to measure. But there's also how they do those behaviours. So there's a continuous stream of of expressiveness, all these expressive qualities that your animals can be calm and relaxed and a little bit fearful and a little bit tense or very frightened. And we see that and we interpret it. We have another being and you enter a more relational paradigm. You enter, in a way, a moral domain as well. And so the essence of that domain is communication, inviting the other being to express itself and then learning, developing the skill to properly understand the way the other being expresses itself. I like these sort of things. It means that you can get it wrong. But the interesting thing philosophically is that the fact that you can get it wrong doesn't mean it's invisible. It's like with people. If you know somebody really well, you can see right away. Sometimes you know even better than they do themselves, you know. I never have any problem with farmers explaining this because they they often understand right away. You know, they relate. You know, when you work with animals a long time, you develop a sense and understanding of how these animals express themselves. But it's important to acknowledge that even then, you never really necessarily fully know the other animals because it's not an object. What might the implications of this be? 
of truly recognizing farmed animals as sentient, thinking, feeling individuals, as subjects rather than objects? What could it mean for the way we keep and raise them? Thinking back to some of the accounts we've heard of more industrial methods of farming animals, can these be compatible with this understanding of animals as sentient beings? How might it affect the way we approach animal welfare in farming contexts? It becomes important that welfare is something that not just we give the animal as if it's a passive recipient, that the animal can create for itself. At a very early stage of my studies, I was very interested in boredom. Because boredom isn't so much a matter of pain or stress or not being fed well. It's really a way of suffering that only arises if you understand that it's crucially important for animals to be creative. To have a creative, proactive relationship with their environment where they, instead of being fed well, they can go and feed themselves well. It's very well established scientifically that animals will go and look for food even if they have food ready-made available. They will go and build their own nests even if they have ready-built nests available. So happiness and positive excitement and playfulness and good relationships are all as vitally important as the other more physical needs of an animal. And so it can also suffer when it doesn't get these positive qualities. And so to me, this is the essence of what it means to give animals a good life. What might it look like to give animals that good life? A life that includes happiness, playfulness and good relationships. Seanach and Andrew Barber raise cows and sheep at Mains of Fincastle in Perthshire, Scotland. You have to give them as close as possible their natural way of living. It's also socially they've got to be able to interact mm -hmm. in their environment. They need to be able to choose the environment that suits them. Yeah. And that's where the trees come in because trees give animals shelter. They give them a different type of feed as well. We think animals need to be able to make some sort of choice as to where they spend their time. We work on a rotational grazing system. So it's a compromise and it's a balance because you're also moving them in groups around the farm to give that rest period, which is good for wildlife. And every farm would be different in finding that balance according to the soil type, the vegetation that's there, the type of animals that they have. Chickens and cows are, of course, very different animals. But what's true for the cows on Andrew and Shonig's farm in Perthshire is also true for the chickens on Jill and Colin Russell's farm in Ayrshire. Hi. Hello. This is the kind of older coop design, so this is the kind of polytunnel on skid um, one that Colin <laughs> designed. And the, the girls obviously have access to all of the ground and within a day or two days they'll be on to new fresh ground um, and they have access to you know, both coops all 24, 24 hours a day. So this is the thing that's quite nice when they're obviously out in the natural environment. They love making um, dust baths. Although this is a kind of sleepy part of the day, you can see they're all kind of in for their afternoon naps. They're all lying in the grass just having a... Having a chill. We just wanted to give chickens as good a life as they can have whilst they're here on the farm. So allowing them to do as much that they would natural naturally, behaviors. natural behaviours they would do anyway. So, you know, that led to this, you know, the, t the term you would call pasture poultry. It's this method where you're, you're constantly moving the chickens. So, you know, we're just using electric nets and we're just moving them like every day, on and on and on. And that just means that they're getting on a bit of land, they're getting to go and scratch it, forage for what they need, and then they're moving off before they cause any damage. What about the other element of welfare that Francoise mentioned? Good relationships. After all, just like us human animals, many farmed animals are simultaneously unique individuals 
as well as being deeply social beings who can only be fully understood in the context of their social ties. They also have their friend groups. They have cows that they actively like being next to and they'll stand and they'll lick one another and, you know, groom one another and be very happy in that cow's company and are uncomfortable if they're separated, you know. Mm. So how might we do a better job of respecting and facilitating the need these animals have to build and maintain relationships with each other? We watch the relationships develop. We keep the calves and the mums together and we do natural weaning so they stay together, but so do all the other ages and stock classes. So everyone's in one herd, apart from our bull who lives separately with some pals. And we can see that in the intergenerational relationships and we can see that particular family groups and anyone who keeps animals who kind of, you know, watches them in this way will tell you this. You see those kind of very individual relationships develop. And, of course, another important element in the social lives of farm animals is the relationships they have with the humans who keep them. What might good welfare, welfare that recognises the sentience of farmed animals, what might that mean for the way farmers relate to the animals they're raising? My experience is that farmers who work in a system where they have time and space to care for individual animals They have the skill already, and they really do care. Farmers care. And I think it's not just for animal welfare. I think also for human welfare, it matters. And, you know, that's where the kind of naming comes. And we name the animals for ease, but also because it's a way of sort of signalling our respect for them. And so it's kind of recognising the character as well as the animal. And I recognise that for some people it's really difficult to square that circle as it were of like naming animals and then eating them and I don't expect other people if they don't like it to change their mind or to do it the way we do it I just think for us it makes sense and I would much rather know the animal and know the production system rather than eat meat kind of blindly without care for where it's come from like for me that doesn't demonstrate respect and so yeah it just kind of makes sense within my worldview I guess. Personally, I I feel an empathy, especially with the cows, especially at birthing time. And if, for example, a cow loses a calf, which sometimes happens, dies or is a stillborn or whatever, that cow goes through a mourning period. You know, she is definitely depressed. And I feel for that cow. I really feel for that cow. When you have... Old cows who have lived their life on the farm and it comes to the time for them to be moved on. They're taken off the farm. I cry when these cows leave. I really do. You know them. I, you know them. We know these cows. And they know you because uh, the idea that an animal doesn't know people is nonsense. They very much know you. So you're careful about taking strangers in because that makes them nervous. They want to know who you are. I think the the experiences that Nikki and Seanig and Andrew have just been sharing are really, really powerful. And I guess in the broader context of of what we've heard from Francoise, I have a lot of questions about the implications of of this kind of thinking, um, this understanding of positive welfare Mm. um, for our idea of less and better. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think if we accept that what we should be trying to achieve is that vision of positive welfare, where if we are going to be farming animals, where they do have the opportunity to form relationships with each other, um, to pursue their interests, to feed themselves in the way that they want to to shelter themselves in the way that they want to to have enough stimulation that they're not getting bored all of that feels really important but it's a really high bar and for me that raises the question of is it possible to provide that kind of welfare at an industrial scale and i suspect the answer it's probably no, in which case then, you know, that is a constraint on 
the volume of meat we're producing and consuming. I think there's a lot of focus often on the raising of the animal, but there's not a lot of focus on the killing of the animal. I had referred to Dougie and Dennis as having given their lives, but of course, a more honest way of saying that would be to say, you know, that they were killed. It's time to address the elephant we parked in the room at the start of this episode. Death, slaughter, killing. Again, we have to acknowledge that this entire conversation is premised on the assumption that it is possible to reconcile killing animals with the idea of welfare. We know that for lots of people, like Kumar and Molly, it's impossible to reconcile those things. But if we do think that, at least in some instances, killing animals for meat can be okay, then what does that look like? And why don't we think about this more? For most people in the UK, and in other places too, killing animals for food is something we don't spend a lot of time dwelling on. It just is. But why is that? We heard from Hiba Mazhari in the last episode talking about food justice. She's a PhD researcher at Oxford University's School of Geography and the Environment, where she focuses on meat consumption, slaughter and identity in the British halal meat industry. Animal death is both physically and figuratively distanced from citizens in modern, highly industrialised societies. And legitimacy of animal death is often determined by where it takes place, who does it, and why it's done. Firstly, it happens in very specific locations. So where are abattoirs or slaughterhouses? Is it easy to to access them? Over time, slaughterhouses in industrialised countries have been moved out of densely populated urban areas and into more peripheral and often rural locations. We very rarely get to see what goes on inside, and a lot of this is tied up with the formalisation and centralisation of slaughter, and also tied up with hygiene and biosecurity regulation. So you could say there are other justifications for having slaughterhouses being isolated and difficult to access. It's not just, oh, we don't want consumers to see what's going on, but it's definitely all linked. This level of concealment is more often a characteristic of highly industrialized nations. And this this lack of exposure is something that is culturally variable. Who does it also matters. In this country, for example, only a small group of people are licensed to be able to kill animals. And why it's done is also something that makes a difference to legitimacy. So commonly accepted reasons for killing animals in society are for the sake of science, for the sake of food, but something that's much more contested and less accepted is, for example, killing animals for sport. So yeah, to sum up, animal death and legitimacy of animal death is highly shaped by where it takes place, who does it, and why it takes place. What about the figurative distancing that Hibba talks about? For example, what role does language play in masking, mystifying, euphemising the reality of animal death? In this series, we've already heard a range of different terms used for the act of taking an animal's life. Terms like dispatching, slaughtering, processing, killing. Does it matter how we talk about this? It's interesting to see the the different language that is used in different contexts. So again, I prefer animal death because it's quite self-explanatory. And then killing, I would say, is a bit more immediate. In a slaughterhouse, things like processed could be used. And this is what I would put under the category of figurative distancing of animal death. Yeah, you were saying about... um trying to avoid euphemisms mm. which is is pertinent given that I'm thinking back to what I was saying and I was saying bring to slaughter you know things like that mm. maybe part of this like confronting 
um, and sort of being clear-eyed and looking straight on at the reality of what it means to eat meat, which means effectively to be involved in a system of killing animals. Mm. I guess part of that is, is talking about it honestly and, and yeah. rather than saying, you know, this animal was taken to slaughter, mm. we say this animal was killed. Some somebody killed somebody killed this animal. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. it's more that mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I'm sure there are people who would argue that actually, you know, the the most accurate phrasing would be the life was if we're if we're gonna put it that way the life was taken rather than the life was given. I think we would eat less meat if we knew what it was like to kill animals more. I, I think that's probably true. I think we'd have more respect. That's Alex Hifron, a farmer and PhD researcher based in southwest Wales. I don't have a personal problem with killing animals. I think my issue is around how that death occurs and trying to make sure they have the best death possible, the least stress as possible, and with as much respect and gratitude for that and, and connection to that. What is the best death possible in terms of animal welfare? What might it mean to respect and to care for an animal, not just during its life, but through the process of death as well? Some people claim that smaller scale, more local abattoirs can bring major benefits for the animals who are killed in them. Having more abattoirs that are better distributed across the country would massively reduce the distances animals have to travel before slaughter. And this could reduce the physical and emotional distress that many of them experience before they're killed. Plus, smaller abattoirs generally allow the people who work in them to give the animals much more individual care and attention before and at the point of death. But are these things enough to amount to a good death? If what we want is to better appreciate the gravity of what we're doing when we kill animals for meat, What role could there be in that for ritual? Hibba's focus is on halal. In some ways, the halal ritual has certain inbuilt characteristics or components that force you to have a more open approach to animal death. So at the level of the slaughterer in the slaughterhouse, there are some things that really force a reflection on death. So the requirement for hand slaughtering versus machine slaughtering. I would say the vast majority of British Muslims would say you have to hand slaughter. So that encourages more closeness with the act. The requirement to isolate the moment of death. So in the non-halal method, you have the stunning, then the neck incision. And the stun, whatever method it is, whether it's captive bolt or electric, or gas, that could actually kill the animal before the incision. For the halal process, you have to be able to prove that the stun didn't kill the animal and it was actually the neck incision. So you could argue that there's more isolation of the moment of death and less of a diffusion of responsibility across the assembly line. And also the fact that you've got to utter a prayer over each individual animal. So you could say, okay, well, that's a more open approach to death. Samson Hart and Sarah Moon had a different experience of ritual around animal death. They're the co-founders of diasporous Jewish collective Miknaf Haaretz, and they've both taken part in the Adamar Jewish Food and Farming Fellowship in the United States. As part of the Adamar Fellowship, participants can take part in the ritual slaughter of animals they've helped to raise. We were invited, depending on the time of year, you know, when I was there, it was kind of spring, summer. So we did a ritual slaughter, a shechting of a chicken. Whereas if you're there in the autumn, the it's with the goats. So I was there and I had this very visceral experience. I was almost vegan, you know, I was like, I was milking these goats every day and it felt beautiful to connect with them. And I also felt like unsure about that process. And then I was like, you know, maybe I'll just, I'll witness this ritual of killing this chicken and that'll be the final straw, I'll be full vegan. And I had a totally different experience that really shocked me. It felt kind of very beautiful and also painful and terrifying. And because of the ritual way in which we did it maybe as well, and and then the way in which we ate the animal after, we, you know, we made a big soup on the fire and, we, and it fed a lot of people. 
and it felt like wow that's that's honoring life what happened to me when i was part of the process of slaughtering an animal was that my idea of the sanctity of life increased you know we were also so well held emotionally that it was like come like we really encourage you to come and we're here to talk about it in any way that needs to be spoken about and we're here to process that together i just remember really viscerally remember kind of the moment in which well it was a rooster who died and how quickly it went from life to us plucking the chicken and you know still feeling the warm body of this animal to like looking like meat and how quickly you can just lose that sense of sacredness if you're not paying attention there's a responsibility for us to kind of hold up that sacredness if we're going to be killing and eating animals we have Jewish shepherd ancestors, you know, that was a big part of at least the stories of, of our ancestors in the Torah and the Hebrew Bible. Those stories of, of being, living through a relationship with animals, in relationship with land. So for me, Jewishly, like I'm very interested in bringing forth those rituals that are there to remember a way of relating with land and our place, our human place, which is a rightful place within our ecology, like remembering that. And so I feel like ritual is essential to kind of connect in. And yeah, ritual is about community. It's about that collective experience that is also then about beyond your own ego, like beyond your own individual experience. Like, what is this for? What is this slaughter for? Who is it for? So I think it's about bringing into community something which can be quite sectioned off and, and individualized. We spent like a lot of time thinking about Jewish values connected to food, food growing and eating meat. And at the time I was like a militant vegan. And actually for me, I felt like Judaism was calling me to that as a way of having like as least harm as possible to to animals and the environment. I would say now I'm I'm a post-vegan and I don't eat meat, but I'm much more curious about yeah, regenerative farming practices around meat and exploring that, especially within a Jewish context. And yeah, just asking ourselves, what is kosher? And for me, Jewish values like speak to liberation and justice and freedom for all beings, you know, whether that's workers or animals or ecologies around us and ourselves, our health, life is so much at the center of Judaism. A big part of it is the intention I wondered if I could actually share a little story. In the story, a young person is pouring water over a sharpening stone as they prepare their knife for slaughter. And this other person looking over, who's over 90 years old, is shaking his head. And this young person thinks that maybe because of his age, he's shaking his head, that he's disapproving. But when this young person said, why are you shaking your head when I'm working? And he said, you're not doing good work. The Baal Shem Tov, when he sharpened his knife, would wet his stone with tears. I think a lot of religious tradition and ritual came from just more direct and like intimate experience with land and creatures. And we've had to, we've had to like add a lot of ritual in because we've not maybe had that closeness and we've had to really like work on intention and attention so we're more mindful perhaps of what we're what we're eating but I think fundamentally ritual is there when we've like tended that food in a particular way so that's what feels really exciting for me and I think you know ritual with regard you know taking an animal's life that feels so important in whatever way you might do it it's not just about you. There's like an honoring that needs doing. There's like a seeing of this animal, like taking a moment, you know, at, it, at its simplest. I think, you know, if we did that, how could we have the mess of like the farming and food system that we have today? For me, like it makes eating meat to be what it should be, which is a very precious thing that happens rarely. And that's very far from like most of what farming is. It kind of shifted my longing to be to be closer to that process, to, to take that into my own hands and and then like feel what it really means to 
to live. And what about as eaters of meat? The way Samson talks about the significance of ritual in his experience of killing an animal, the way it centers honoring and really seeing the animal, it's a long way from what we've learned about the way that animal death is distanced and justified in modern industrial societies. It's an approach that refuses to look away from the truth of what's being done, killing. Could the same approach be relevant for those of us who aren't directly involved in killing animals for food? Could this increased awareness be part of the less and better meat picture? Would more awareness of animal death force us to more carefully consider the ethics of the meat we eat? Hibber thinks there is some potential here, but she does also caution that there's not a straightforward relationship between more awareness and more ethical decision-making. So I've grappled with this myself, which is the question of what's the relationship between exposure to animal death and, on the other hand, ethical consideration, more visibility or more frequent witnessing. Is that ethically generative necessarily? And what I found is that it's quite a complex picture and it's not necessarily as straightforward as saying if you just showed everyone a video of slaughter or if you allowed people to visit slaughterhouses, everyone would reduce or cut out their meat consumption. I think there is transformative potential in the idea that transparency leads to political transformation. But equally, there's also the flip side, which is too much exposure also leads to desensitization. So yes, there's definitely space for saying, okay, let's get more people into slaughterhouses. Let's educate people about what goes on. That may not be exposing abuse necessarily, just allow them to see what best practice is. And that might still be something that they're uncomfortable with and may lead to cutting down meat consumption. So that could be what a more open approach looks like. But what's quite interesting is what I've come across is in efforts to have a more open approach towards animal death, what actually gets in the way is logistical issues. So it's not necessarily that there's no appetite for it. Sometimes practically it's difficult to achieve. What practically gets in the way of trying to cultivate more open outlooks to animal death is the space of the modern slaughterhouse. So you could say in some ways it's antithetical to cultivating this closeness. And so maybe the question is then, if it's the scale that's preventing this closeness, then downscaling is the way to go. Our daughter's having a totally opposite upbringing to us. So like she has seen us killing chickens from like her being two years of age. Alex also thinks there could be potential for killing to be made more visible and for people to be closer to the process. You know, to her at the minute, it's quite a matter of fact, but she's only four years old and I'm waiting for more of those questions to come up as she gets older as well around mortality and death and what that means. And I wonder what phases she'll go through with that as well. But like most people don't have that opportunity to, to be that involved. So how do we facilitate that? Sometimes I wonder whether we should all really have to visit an abattoir and see the whole process. And if we can be involved, maybe maybe not even necessarily be involved, but actually just at least witnessing and, and being there through it. Is that something you know, like schools could be doing? I, I don't see why not myself. But the thing is, I don't think it can just be, to contradict myself earlier, that you just, when you're a kid, you go and visit an abattoir for a day and that's all you've ever done in your life. Because the, the more time goes on, the more you just disavow that and park it in your, in your psyche, you know. So what is that ongoing connection? How do you keep that up? That is really hard. And I, I don't think the answer is that, you know, we all get to know our farmer. I don't think that's realistic. Like, you know, how do several million people in London get to know their local farmer? What is that about? Like, it's not possible. So... We're going to have to have other ways of doing that. So how else might we reduce our detachment, our alienation, from the reality of what it means to kill animals for meat? 
Once again, maybe ritual could help us as eaters to appreciate what we're doing when we eat animals. Maybe it could help us to recenter what some people might refer to as the sacred nature of eating animals. How does ritual encourage the average halal consumer to have a more open approach to death? Well, again, the fact that the method of death actually has implications on the religious permissibility of the meat. So because of that, halal consumers, at least those who who care about the um, religious compliance of the meat, they are kind of forced to ask these questions about death now, does that necessarily mean that it's more ethically generative? I would say not necessarily, because a lot of consumers just say, okay, was it slaughtered correctly? So they, they maybe ask one more question about the method of death, but then they leave it to that, and it doesn't necessarily extend to further questions about animal welfare and the life of the animal beyond just the final few seconds of slaughter. But you could say that the concern with the correctness of the ritual it's kind of a trigger, it's a motivation to ask more questions and maybe just needs to be pushed a bit further. How do you feel, given everything that we know about about this meat? Um, yeah, I, I have been reflecting on what Nikki was saying yesterday when we spoke with her about this about how for her knowing the names of the animals is part of her, or naming them and knowing their names as they go to slaughter is, is part of her way of respecting them. And um, I think that's important. And I think I agree with her, at least at the moment. <laughs> there is no animal in any ecosystem that exists without causing harm or at least benefiting from the death of any other animals or organisms and so I think maybe confronting that and given that we have this consciousness and this awareness I still really I I struggle with the experience of cooking meat I find it quite visceral I guess um you know literally I suppose um the texture, the smell, having having not had any kind of um, early experience of cooking meat and very little experience of eating meat, it's definitely still something that evokes quite a lot of mixed emotions in me, I suppose. There's definitely still an ambivalence there. But yeah, similarly, I think I find it quite reassuring that we know so much about this, you know, even to the point where we do actually know the names of the animals um there's something yeah there's something quite um comforting about that I suppose that sounds a bit selfish maybe but um it gives us a bit more reason and a bit more opportunity to actually think about those animals um than we would if we had just picked this up in anonymous packaging I suppose yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> we're standing around here staring at them and, and and talking about them. And I think that, you know, maybe, hmm, yeah, maybe the world would be a better place if we all took the time to sit around and think about the lives of the animals <laughs> who, who we were going to eat. Absolutely. It's an interesting thought, like, if all the meat that we buy had a name stamped on it as well what impact would that have on on people's buying habits yeah (laughs) interesting thought because even even the meat that I do buy um I know the farm that it comes from so that's something but other than that I really don't know much about how it's been produced or about the individual animal you know the, the point of this series isn't to answer the question what is less and better but I wonder if it's an interesting sort of thought experiment Mm -hmm. to think about the question of whether whether a world where we know as much as we know about the animals who gave their lives for us to eat this steak is that what less and better looks like when we know that about every piece of meat we eat because probably 
that it's not possible to, <laughs> for there to be as much meat in the food system if that's the sort of criteria for it. And if we're going to know that much about it, it probably can't yeah. be raised in ways that we find inhumane mm-hmm. or uh, distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I wonder if that's maybe one way of thinking about it. And maybe for me even to think about, well, what does this mean for me? I've always been a massive carnivore. So this is, I think, where I got to, is that I just didn't want to think about what I was eating and why and where it was coming from. That's Jo Pepper. We heard from her right at the start of this episode. Jo's a member of Lynchmere Community Grazing Cooperative, AKA the Cow Club. She volunteers as one of the club's cow lookers. They help to monitor the health and welfare of the herd. I've got no background whatsoever in animals or nature or the countryside or anything. And then um, I moved here a few years ago, started going for walks to try and get fitter, just stumbled across the cows. I just got completely obsessed with them, just completely fell in love with them. And after you know a long stressful day at work, just to go and hang out with the cows at the end of the day, especially when the weather's nice, it's just really, really nice. Six years ago, I was a party animal and now I'm hanging out with cows. In a way, the relationship that Joe's developed with the cows seems to embody those feelings of connection and closeness and respect. But we also think Joe's thoughts sum up the ambivalence that a lot of us feel, or at least that we definitely feel, when it comes to raising, killing and eating animals. Because I only joined fairly recently, I haven't actually eaten any of the meat. Now, with the prospect of having, you know, my first meat box, that it is going to start making me think really about what what meat I eat and where it has come from. It's, it's the best type of meat to have. They've had a wonderful life. They've eaten really healthily. They've had people looking after them and caring for them. It's not mass-produced meat. It's very ethical. It's the most ethical meat you could have. I just love them so much. And because I'm sort of in love with the cows, I haven't worked out yet how I'm going to, I can't think of the word, but just sort of justify it in my head of eating a bean that I love. It's, it's quite a strange sort of thing. There will always be disagreements about what's fundamentally right or wrong. Perhaps more than any others, These kinds of moral and ethical judgments don't have a clear-cut answer. But even so, how might we do the best we can in an area that, for us, feels like it's maybe one of the most inescapably uncertain? I think there can be like paradox here. It can be like beautiful and sacred and also disturbing and disarming. And I think it was all of those things, it felt so important to like be close to what it really is to take life. You know, it's a huge thing and it's done like with with so little awareness. It's part of the cycle. We give, we take, and the same is true for us. The idea that somehow you can live life without incurring any death is a lie, is a delusion. But you, you should never take life lightly. It should be respectful. Whoever is living is in relationship with the land in some way. If you eat, you are rural, you're living on the land. You know, we're all connected in that way. That involves choices. It involves tilling the soil. It involves, you know, taking habitat from certain wildlife in some way. It's like our involvement with life and death is there, whether we're growing plants or animal, tending animals. How do we become part of an ecology of a place? What does that mean? And and it involves asking questions and doing things that, that are hard. I don't think there will be many people who can say that they have a resolved position. If you live in our society, it's not possible to to not take a compromised position in some way or other. But for me, the primary thing is to, to recognise that, that animals need to be honoured as sentient beings in the way they can live their lives. 
And that has massive implications and we are morally obliged to think through them. And I think one very obvious implication is we need to be willing to consume much, much, much less so that if we want to farm animals, the quality of their lives and also by implication of the produce that we get from that is much higher, quality not quantity. I have to say I wouldn't want to personally do away with farming completely. I think there is so much value in human and animals living together. I think it probably means that large industrial animal farming systems are not morally feasible. But, you know, those are journeys that don't happen overnight. I think we're just um, getting our heads around this. Animals aren't just systems with interests and feelings. You could say they're, they're another you. You know, there's another being in there. It's not just an object. It, it's, it's really somebody there. In the next and final episode, we'll be thinking about everything we've heard and trying to find some common ground, some shared values, to help shape our vision of less and better meat. Thanks for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode and links to relevant resources on the Farmerama website. If you value what we do at Farmerama, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Less and Better is researched, produced and edited by me, Katie Revel, and me, Olivia Oldham, with the support of executive producer Joe Barrett. Our series music is by Alex Batchelor, and our artwork is by Yagoda Sadowska. Thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Dora Taylor, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Lucy Fisher. Less and Better was made possible thanks to generous funding from the Roddick Foundation and the A-Team Foundation. 